0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
0: And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
1: This week, will the Red Wall crush Boris Johnson?
0: Plus, how to save the BBC?
1: And finally, is it moral to do good with bad money?
0: First up, in this week's Spectator, our political editor James Forsyth and our Deputy Political Editor, Katie Balls, report on the plots to oust the Prime Minister by Red Wall MPs and Number 10's battle to save Boris. They both join us now. Katie, ever since the start of Partygate, we've heard lots about disgruntled Tories. But in your cover piece this week, you focus on a plot against Boris Johnson from one particular group, the Red Wall Tory MPs. Why is this group so angry?
2: (sighs) So this is a 2019 intake of Tory MPs and they're a mix. So I think the ones that got the most attention are the Red Wall MPs and those obviously MPs with seats in the Midlands and North, which um, many in a way point or credit Boris Johnson for realigning politics by winning those seats um, a little over two years ago. What's really interesting this week is there has been a sense that there's lots of, you know, febrile Tories. I think you often see the word febrile in Twitter and all copy. But Downing Street ultimately thought they would have, you know, plenty of time before the Sue Gray report, to really to not really have to worry about a confidence vote any that reaching 54 letters is what you need to trigger a confidence vote and then there was quite a lot of panic on tuesday because all of a sudden the, uh, the whips ministers got with uh, the pork pie plot now the pork pie plot is actually a very weak joke just because one of the mps involved who is not a red wall mp and um, has uh, you know the home of pork pies in her seat but 20 mps predominantly um, those from the Red Wall met and they were discussing Boris Johnson's future. They had a secret ballot where they all put in whether or not they had put a letter in already and about half had and more considered doing so and this led to talk that actually they could reach 54 letters and i while in the end that was fraughted the next day, because you had one such Red wall MP defect from the Tories to Labour, which I think brought out a sense of, you know, tribal politics, it pointed to the vulnerability that Boris Johnson faces, which is, A little over two years ago, these um, Red Wall MPs were in many ways, you know, Boris Johnson's proudest asset. He was calling them his Blue Wall MPs. He was saying, you know, this is how I'm going to win, you know, a second term in office by expanding this. And now they're the ones pushing to oust him the hardest. And that goes down to a few things. One is tiny majorities, but also the fact they just do not feel that loyal to Boris Johnson, which is quite curious if you think about the circumstances. James,
1: you also write in this week's issue about the battle to save Boris, and, and you, you suggest that even ministers now doubt whether he can recover. How are things looking for him, do you think?
3: I think if it goes to a confidence vote, things are very bad for him. So the the challenge for him is to try and stop those 54 letters going in. I think, as Katie says, on Tuesday night, you know, Westminster went into a, a kind of proper... Frenzy. Everyone was calling everybody else and, and everyone was very excited. And then I think the Christian Wakeford defection just stopped all that outright because the Tory tribal instincts kicked in. Now, considering how long he had been in talks of Labour, I think it's quite clear that Labour chose to pull him in at that moment because, you know, they want to draw this process out. And I think, so what I think Tory MPs have gone back to is saying that we will wait for the grey report. We expect the grey report next week. My best sense, and this is this is this is always an an, an an imprecise science. My best sense is that there are a good number of Tory MPs who decided to send a letter in post Grey, almost regardless of what it says. But they they want to wait for the report to be published. I think if Grey comes in in line with Tory MPs' expectations, I think you're probably bobbing around 40 letters. I mean, the danger for number 10 is that number 10 has been busy reassuring Tory MPs that the Grey Report is not going to be that bad for Boris Johnson. There have been some suggestions in recent days that the Grey Report, which number 10 were expecting this week, now next week, but that delay does not equal good news for them. And the report might be slightly worse than expected, in which case, I think that, that, that things will, depending on how much worse, 54 will be more. Within the range of the rebels,
1: see so you can foresee a situation which Boris clings on, and and then what? I mean, what, what what happens in the may elections?
3: No, I, I think the, I think the may elections. I think the may elections will be bad, and I think the problem for Boris Johnson is accumulation. Right, the, you know, lessons very rarely go out. They don't. Never go out, but once people have put one in, they and then do you get more people putting in letters in May? And also, remember, you know, we've said so many times on this podcast before, but you know, beg the listeners' indulgence. His relationship with his party is very transactional. And if he ceases to look like an electoral asset, and as you know, as Katie highlights in her piece, you know, these MPs think he lots of these Red Wall MPs think he is not anymore, or certainly not at the moment, then I think it is likely that the letters do go in. And
0: I think once the letter is in, it is a very difficult moment for him. Katie, we've mentioned Christian Wakeford's shocking defection on, on Wednesday, which was a, a quite exciting moment and, and I think quite unexpected moment for many people in Westminster. The Labour Party seems quite keen to be talking up uh, rumours of other possible defections from disgruntled Red Wall MPs. Do you think there's any truth to those rumours? And also, um, how do you think uh, Labour members, parliamentary members, I should say, are... I'm going to rephrase that question. And secondly, do you think that Labour MPs are happy about Christian Wakeford's defection, or do some of them see him as once a Tory, always a Tory?
2: I think it depends who you speak to. And also, it's not even once a Tory, always a Tory. I think there is a sense that defecting from Tory to Labour or vice versa is quite a statement and both the parties have pretty different messages on lots of things. And therefore, I think actually it's more that he's being treated with suspicion by some MPs. I think some are quite keen because they think that ultimately Labour needs to regain these Labour heartlands and it sends a strong s- signal. Also, if you look at um, Christian Vacant's seat, anti-Semitism was a huge problem there in terms of Jeremy Corbyn. So having the Tory MP say uh, that, you know, they are happy to stand for Labour in a seat which has, you know, a high Jewish community, I think is something that is seen as tactically quite important by those in Labour high command. I think that... He's in a way seen as a bit of a live wire. And if you look at some of his previous comments, I'm not going to say the word on this podcast, but rhymes with Jeremy Hunt um, yeah. about a few things. Um, I think I think people are actually just wondering, how is this going to land? And I think it, it could be quite a roller coaster now this person is a Labour MP. And already people are digging up old things he said to say, well, is he really Labour? And you've seen um, the Labour grassroots, so momentum you've labour the labor left really questioning it but that's one thing but i just think there is a sense that this could be quite an interesting experience having this person in the labor party in terms of i think are there gonna be more defections clearly labor want to suggest they are going to be i'm a little bit skeptical that there are gonna be lots but i do think it goes back to something about red wall mps which is this one uh government whip said to me and as i put in the piece they said They're not conservatives. A lot of these people are Brexiteers who stood for the Tory party. And I think this is why they're much harder to predict or control when it comes to if they're going to try and ask Boris Johnson if they have the numbers, what they're going to do next. Are they going to defect to Labour? Because they're not lifelong conservatives. Many ultimately decided to run for the Tory party because of Brexit, because it was that point when there was a constitutional crisis and the Labour party was seen to be blocking it. And it just means they don't have the strong ties that lots of their colleagues in more traditional Tory seats do. James can you explain to,
1: our, to listeners what's going on with the whips at the moment because you mentioned in uh, the piece um, that one of Johnson's problems is his strain relations with his own whips but we're, we're sort of hearing more about the whips what's going on there?
3: So if you think back to the Owen um, Paterson business in November from which I you think know, you could argue that was the beginning of Boris Johnson's troubles after there's a massive backlash that and Number 10 basically kind of suggested that the the chief whip had been at fault here, hadn't told them how much opposition there was on the Tory benches, had pushed the idea very hard. I think the whips felt very burnt by that. They felt the chief whip was just kind of doing what he'd been asked to do. And there's been a kind of estrangement between the whips and Number 10. I think there was a feeling that at the beginning of this process, the whips were not particularly pulling their fingers out to try and shore up Boris Johnson's position. So what I think you've seen, and it's been very visible in parliament in recent days is lots of boris johnson's old campaign team people like nigel adams chris pincher connor burns basically coming back wandering around the palace of westminster popping over to mps who are having a cup of tea or eating their lunch and trying to kind of sound them out on where they are and they are clearly trying to create their own political intelligence gathering to give the prime minister a sense of where things are and where they are heading now, I think this raises the difficulty, which is some Tory MPs are saying, look, this is a better operation than what the whips are providing. You know, The Prime Minister, if he can get through this, should have a reshuffle, clear out the whips' office, bring in some more of these people. But reshuffles always make Prime Ministers more enemies than friends. And if you are getting close to that number of uh, 54 is it really sensible for a prime minister to create a few more enemies at that precise moment? So I think this is, I think he has a problem, which is trying to manage party discipline. I mean, you also think, see, that maintaining party discipline is just much harder these days, you know. 29 MPs, as uh, Katie said, are, are much more independently minded. Then you had Will Rad, not in that intake, but um, friendly with lots of them, you know, today saying that, you know, what the whips are up to you know, amounts to kind of blackmail and threats that should be reported to the police. And I think what he's saying is, you know, is one veteran of the whips office said to me, it's the most reassuring news I've heard in days. That, you know, the whips are doing their job now. Now I, 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 we obviously would not condone people kind of threatening people with withdrawal of funding or the like. You know, but these things have happened. Uh, you know the Westminster. The whips have twisted arms, and you could argue that this funding element has has become more. That port barrel politics has become more pronounced in Britain in in recent years, but you know if you think back to the old days, yeah, the, the the whips were kind of you know would physically force people up against the wall until they agreed to vote with the government. Now this doesn't mean any of this is right, but I think the fact that people are so will- so much more willing to call this out is a sign of how much harder it is to control parliamentary discipline. Yeah, you know? I mean if you you know. If you think back to the kind of post-war era, you know everyone had either served in World War Two or done national service. You know hierarchy, deference, order came to them much more naturally. These MPs, you know, I think there is a feeling even among some kind of forty-something ministers that the the gap, generational gap between them and these people in their early forties, is huge, huge. Because these people in their early forties, they could kind have of say, you know, they think out loud on social media in a way that, that you know is kind of you know
0: politicians in their mid forties wouldn't think of doing. And Katie, is there a plan in number 10, do you think, to try and win back some of these Red Wall MPs uh, back onto, onto side? I mean, we've heard a lot about Operation Red Meat. Uh, is that targeted particularly at, at some, of these, uh, some of these MPs?
2: Yeah, I think Operation Red Meat is very much the right of the party and I would say the Red Wall MPs because uh, things like saying, you know, you're going to take away the BBC licence, they think will play well. To the voters in these areas. Um, they definitely don't play well to other parts of the party, such as more than one nation conservatives. You yeah, know, one called me on Monday saying you know. It, if anything, doing a big announcement, actually having to roll back and it's slightly saying you're cracking down the BBC and suggesting you might close down the BBC or you know move it to a different model, it was turning them the other way. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't want to tell their constituents in their Lib Dem Tory marginal they're closing down the BBC. So I think it is seen in Number Ten much more as um, those on the right of the party and Redwall MPs. Um, so I think there's a bit of that going on, but there's also carrot and stick, and I think that you've seen the whips and Number Ten week responding to some of the people they claim to ring leaders like alicia kearns um the pork pie plot mp ultimately briefing out putting out and you don't know who exactly is but you know putting out into the public domain who these people are this morning christian wakeford who is defected but also deanna davison lots of um you know pieces about questioning their integrity bringing up things they've done in the past and it could be a journalist who has completely acted on their own accord but i think if you've got things you know suggesting oh did these people behave well during lockdown do they have a nice life and so forth it suggests that they're almost trying to say something implicitly to other MPs which is if you stick your head above the parapet you're going to feel the brunt too. So I don't think it's a just all charm offensive. I think there's quite a lot of stick at the moment.
1: And James just to finish on obviously we're expecting the grey report next week. Do you think anything's likely to happen before then or are we now just kind of in a holding No.
3: I think Christian Wakeford's defection stopped everything. And I think there's also a feeling remember 54 letters are not going to be reached unless quite a lot of Tory MPs who've been ministers from older intakes in the party decide to send one in. And there is a general view among them that you should wait for the report. You know, as one of them said, you've got to have due process. This can't be mob justice. I mean, there's a feeling that you need to wait for this report, see what it says, and act once that's come out that it wouldn't be judicious uh, to move before before then.
1: Thank you, James and Katie. Next up... This week, Nadine Dorries announced that she is planning a licence fee freeze for the BBC. In The Spectator this week, Paul Wood, a former journalist at the BBC, writes about his love-hate relationship with the broadcaster. He joins us now along with Dominic Mingala, writer, producer and former showrunner of the BBC's Robin Hood. Paul, in, in The Spectator this week, you've written a piece about the BBC and, and what you see as its problems. The Tories obviously have the BBC in their sights right now. Do, do you think they're right to?
4: Well, we were just saying before we started recording, I've been in the BBC or had been in the BBC for almost 30 years. And I'm still a friend of the BBC. I guess I'd call myself a friendly critic. I don't like people working for the corporation for 25 or 30 years. And then as soon as they're out of the door, deciding that it was all rubbish... Uh, and that what they were doing really wasn't very good. Most journalists in the BBC really care about doing an honest job of journalism. They care about impartiality. But I think we have to admit there is a problem when half the country seems to be angry at the BBC the whole time, and bear in mind everybody has to pay for the BBC. And the problem, if BBC staff are honest about it, and I know that uh, reflexively, having been a member of staff, you circle the wagons, ask people for examples of where it's gone wrong, like to, to, to see them stumped when they grope, for an example. But if we're honest, there is a cultural problem, probably to do with a narrow recruitment base, which leads to a certain narrowness of outlook. And as one senior BBC manager, former manager, said to me, very senior person who used to run the place, you know, the, 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 every mile you go north of Watford, trust decreases in the BBC. That is a problem. It's why the BBC got things like Brexit wrong, why it didn't see the red wall wall crumbling. And if the BBC wants to continue to exist, I think Nadine Dorries was right to to threaten that this licence fee could be the last. Now, of course, very politically convenient to threaten that this week of all weeks. You always get these kind of things said in the run up to a licence fee negotiation. But if the BBC wants to survive, it must be impartial. And there's really no other justification for a BBC that is not impartial.
0: Dominic, you've been very outspoken uh, on Twitter against Nadine Doris' announcement. What did you make of Paul's argument there?
5: Good in parts in that I think we probably agree that there's a problem. I'm not sure that we agree that it's the same problem. And I don't know and I honestly don't know whether Paul's instinct is that when he says there's a you know, narrowness of of recruitment and things like that, whether he really means the BBC is a bit left wing and it shouldn't be. I think, I'm not sure that I agree that the BBC got the got Brexit wrong. I'm not sure what counts as getting it right or wrong for a broadcaster, what that actually means. But I would say um, the BBC gave very good coverage to both sides of the Brexit argument. And I think um, that was not a good thing that it did that. And I think that, you know, saying that the the BBC didn't see the... The red wall crumbling i suppose you know is it the job of a broadcaster to see to to see that uh that there's disaffection in the in the red wall area i'm not sure you know and it's certainly not the job of the bbc to somehow alleviate that disaffection you know uh so i think there's 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 loads to unpack in what Paul has said, I do think, you know, I'm I'm also a sort of friendly critic of the BBC. I think probably from, from a from a different angle. Of course it's flawed. And when one works inside it one really feels the the weight of this sort of corporate monolith around you and what you can say and what you can't say and some, you know, absolute, absolutely absurd interpretations of uh, Ed's poll, as they call it, editorial policy. It it ain't perfect. I really wish it was a lot better. But I don't think in in some I would say that Nadine Dory's, you know, look, she's a person who is the culture secretary, but did not know how Channel 4 was funded. That's quite a quite a serious deficiency in a culture secretary. So I'm not inclined really to give her pronouncements that much credence. But I think to say that it's, you know she's got a point is only to support politicians in their bullying of the BBC and if it's impartiality you're after the last thing you want to do is to say that people like this culture secretary have got a point.
4: Well you're absolutely right we don't want a state broadcaster taking orders from a government or being bullied into line by a government and Nadine Dorries I think part of the problem is she's annoyed at the BBC's coverage party gate but annoying government ministers and annoying the government of the day is exactly what the BBC and other journalists are supposed to do political control is the death of journalism as I say in the piece but where she where I do think she has a point is about what we might call the BBC's cultural problem I don't want to just label it as it's too left-wing or it's too liberal Uh, I think we all all know both of us you and I having worked in the BBC that there is a certain culture there and it's not a culture that speaks to a lot of the country, a lot of the country which pays its bills. It might be something as simple as getting Andrew Neil back on board as a presenter. I think there were negotiations to do that. Those are the kind of signals which which people would like to see. Uh, but absolutely we don't want government control. And Nadine Dory's experience of broadcasting is as a contestant um on the the show where they chuck celebrities out of the jungle if they don't eat the ants. I mean she she she's not an expert in this. But I I know that having been in the corporation for 25 or 30 years and I go back to um, see my parents every so often and, and go to dinner parties with their friends and everybody around the table didn't like what the BBC was broadcasting, couldn't quite put their finger on what was wrong with it, but were genuinely angry about it. And there are a lot of people around the country, probably a lot of people who read The Spectator, who feel angry about it. And that's something the BBC has to address. If it doesn't speak to the whole nation and sometimes for the whole nation, then it really can't continue to charge the licence fee.
1: Dominic, uh, Hugh Grant actually came out yesterday in defence of the BBC and he said that the BBC is something the whole world admires with envy. Do you think he's right or do you think we actually have a slightly overblown view of how the rest of the world sees the BBC?
5: Um, my experience is that yes, I think Hugh Grant is right, and Paul has travelled the world with a BBC pass, and he must know that that opens a lot of doors for you. And in, in his in his piece, he says it sometimes causes you trouble as well. But um, or if not in this piece, in a recent piece that I I read of his, so I do think he's right, and I do think you know, the NHS and BBC are two great things that are. You know, three-letter representations of what it is to be British and to be proud to be British, and I think we wouldn't be having this conversation if we didn't, none of us gave a damn about what the BBC was. Of course, we do, and it's the thing, it's the box in the corner that um, looks after so many of us. And you know, I think of my dad. I wrote a piece for the Independent this week, uh, thinking of my dad because I went. He's a hundred years old. I now look after his finances for him. And I had to, I found a piece of paper that said, you owe your, your BBC TV licence, and I had to, and I thought, hang on, surely, and then, of course, then I remembered that the government had taken away the funding for the exemption for over 75s, and he did indeed have to pay his licence fee. And it kind of hurt me to pay it for him. I do get it that it's a, you know, it's a lot of money, and um, um, and he watches Sky almost as much as he watches the BBC but he does watch the BBC and he does listen to Radio 4 and I guess it has to be you know I suppose it has to be paid for but to go back to Paul's point about people who are angry with the BBC and spectator readers who at dinner can't quite put their finger on it but they are cross with the BBC and therefore we shouldn't perhaps bring someone like Andrew Neil to the channel uh, to the BBC I mean I think that's probably true I think there are an awful lot of people who are extremely angry and have been for many years, you know, from a different perspective. You know, there are people in Scotland who, at the time of the referendum, were absolutely furious with the BBC. And I have to admit that at that point, being someone who preferred the union, I found that hard to understand. But then looking back, I can see how irritating that was because when I found myself... I think on the wrong side of the BBC's coverage of Brexit and that I find Brexit to be an an awful thing, I found myself uh, screaming at the television and wishing the BBC would not give credence and so much of a platform to people like Nigel Farage because, uh, you know, I felt that they were creating something that wasn't necessarily already on people's hit list, you know, of priorities. And, you know, I think there are many people around the country, and this isn't to say that the BBC has somehow settled by accident or by design upon some sort of middle ground in which, of course, everyone's a bit annoyed with the BBC, so that proves they're in the right place. I don't agree with that argument at all. But I would just say that the fact that there are people at dinner parties who are annoyed with the BBC does not on its own mean that uh, they should go out and hire Andrew Neil and and take a shift to the right.
0: So uh, as as well as well as the question of impartiality uh, Paul you also touch in your article on the license fee and uh, I I wonder because you do call it outdated is the word you use Uh, do you do you think it is um, a, a regressive form of payment do you think it can last?
4: The license fee was invented Uh, when we lived in a very different world with with one channel and then two channels of television, it is now perfectly technically possible um, to get people to pay for the BBC by subscription and I I think there's a a problem, almost a moral problem in forcing people who don't want to use the service to pay for it which is what we have now with essentially a tax on a piece of furniture in the corner of your room leads to all sorts of contradictions the millionaire with 10 plasma screens paying the same as the pensioner people on benefits, not just being given a criminal record, but in some cases, it doesn't happen very often, but, but I think it was about 100 cases last year of people actually going to jail for not paying it. All of that seems wrong to me and quite offensive in the context of Gary Lineker's two million pounds a year. Um, but we should divorce uh, how the BBC is paid for from the question of what it does. And people like Lord Grade um, say, why not have Daily Mail TV, Daily Mirror TV, spectator tv at, at the moment uh, as you probably know there is a legal obligation on all broadcasters not just the bbc to be impartial lord Gray says that that's out of date you know we we all frame our, our narratives our journalistic narratives in some way why not be honest about it why not be able to argue uh, in an individual piece or on a whole channel for one point of view or the other i mean opinion journalism is perfectly legitimate it's what we all do at the spectator But I think there is a massive need for just good, honest, solid, perhaps a little old fashioned reporting. We need reporting of the world around us. We don't have enough of that. You know, we we reek of opinions, all of us. Uh, There's opinion all over the Internet. It would be good to go somewhere where you can rely on the reporting. Dominic was absolutely right. The coverage of Brexit was exemplary because they were terrified of getting it wrong. And every single running order was judged according to an impartiality test. Would uh, it's a very very simple test? Would everybody uh, named in this story or referred to in the story think they had been treated fairly? Are we reflecting all the main points of view on on the story of the day in this uh, in this piece we're about to run? Um, that's fallen by the wayside. Now there was a review by the chairman of the arts council, Nicholas Sorota, uh, which said the BBC ought to go back to monitoring impartiality, and it's been grinding its gears very slowly about setting up some impartiality reviews. They would be backward-looking. Um, I just think it's as simple as restoring that idea of impartiality to every, edito- every editorial meeting, every running order, and having that test the whole time. Um, people want to do it, and then nobody joins the BBC because they're a political hack. Journalism is a calling, and especially at the BBC. Um, it's just a plea, really, to, for the BBC to return to the high ideals which uh, governed its formation and which most people, when they go through the doors to work, would like to uphold.
0: Paul and Dominic, thank you very much. And finally, the Sackler family, whose fortune was built on getting thousands of Americans addicted to OxyContin, contributing to the country's devastating opioid crisis, are now returning to philanthropy in the UK. But should their ill-gotten money be accepted for good causes? That's the question Sam Leith and Matthew Paris have both asked for The Spectator's website and magazine, respectively. They both join us now. Sam, in your article, you describe the moral narcissism uh, of people who feel the need to stop large companies from handing over ill-gotten gains to various worthy causes through philanthropy. Uh, Can you explain your reasoning to our listeners?
6: Well... Well, I'm I sort of slightly baffled by the attitude, which seems to be very, very widespread, that if a company of whom we disapprove has made its profits in ways we disapprove of, for some people that's addicting a large number of Americans to extremely dangerous opioids; for others, it might be making money in the oil industry or whatever you know cause you choose to disapprove of. That they then say, oh' well, we'll you know, public institutions, galleries." Opera houses, schools and so forth should not accept this money because it's ill-gotten gains and it's, you know, it's much better that they, they should not. And I've always thought of it the other way round, which is, you know, we'd be all in favour of confiscating or taxing these ill-gotten gains and spending them on good causes. So it seems to me rather a kind of prissy objection that if the company's doing it voluntarily and achieving the same result, we should somehow be angry about that. I mean, it seems to me, fundamentally, where would you rather have the money? Would you have it enriching the shareholders of this, you know, naughty company? Or would you rather have it enriching the inner lives of the gallery goers or opera goers or school pupils who benefit from it?
1: Matthew, you respond to Sam's article in this week's Spectator. What did you make of his argument?
7: Well, I, I agree with the argument that he made and that he has just just made up to a point. uh, In fact, I'd rather like to ask Sam, how far do you take this? Is there any kind of blood money, any kind of ignominy in the uh, potential donor that would cause us to think that we should not take money from them? Or, you know, would you take it from Hitler? I know reductio ad Hitler, but would you?
6: (laughs) I think I'd probably set a pretty high bar. Having made that sort of maybe slightly facile thought experiment, which is, you know, we want the money off them and somewhere worthwhile. I mean, I can see that for all sorts of reasons, well, there are sort of two main practical arguments against it, one of which is it allows them to launder their reputations, i.e., you know, maybe having the, you know, Harold Shipman wing of the Children's Hospital or the (laughs) Jimmy Savile wing of the morgue or the whatever it is (laughs) would be a bad look and might under certain circumstances certainly in the pre-Google age might make it possible for people to think oh this you know company must be a good company because it's the benefactor of good causes and the other practical argument is about are these companies giving away a fragment of their profits in order to get a very helpful tax break because I know for some companies you know I'm not an accountant but broadly speaking philanthropy is a way of you know balancing your books in a way that's favorable to you and so so both of those are things you might tidy up and certainly any institution might take a view that look this particular name above the door looks bad but I you know there is that that old saying pecunia non olet you know money doesn't smell the money is the money once it's arrived and if it's doing good rather than enriching about the shareholders of a company that's doing harm I think that's probably fine i mean obviously if the company's purpose is to donate and it's you know the donation is not a sort of side effect of its profits but the reason that it's doing the wrong in the first place that obviously would be a different issue but for the most part i don't think there are any companies that are exploiting child labor or polluting the seas specifically in order to give money to the national gallery
7: but i i press my question is there any level of evil on the part of the would-be beneficiary, which would persuade you not to take money from him.
6: Honestly, I can't really think of one. You know, I, I, mean, I think if, again, if you frame it as I said, I've, I've become too en- enraptured, perhaps, by my little thought experiment, and you can probably explain to me why it doesn't apply. But using that, I would say, the more money you can get, you know, the more evil the company, the
0: more money you should be taking off them. And Matthew, can I turn your question that you throw to Sam back on you? Because you said you did broadly agree with his thesis, but where for you is that the ceiling, as you put it, the, the kind of moral line to be drawn uh, where you think actually that a particular company, organisation or whatever has crossed that line?
7: I, I think it's very difficult to say where the line is. I think it's going to be a very blurred line. I think it's going to be different for each of us. And I, I think it's going to depend very much on individual Cases, but uh, there would be there there would be a line that I w- I wouldn't want to pass. I don't know if it some company was indicted, as it were, or um, accused of exploiting child labour in the in the cruelest kind of way. I I just would be a bit hesitant about taking money from them. I'm I'm fine about Shell and BP and uh, and fine about the Sacklers too, but uh, I I wouldn't want to throw out of the window, the, the moral argument that there is such a thing as tainted money and uh, we must decide for ourselves how, w- whether the depth of the taint overbalances the, the benefit of the donation.
6: I have heard, a, heard an argument advanced, which I don't know what you think about this, Matthew, but it's saying to get around this reputation laundering argument is that people would say you, you either get to have your name on a plaque or you get the tax break but not both. And I wonder whether, I mean, I don't know how practical that is in the real world, but do you think that that, that might be a sort of direction of travel that would, would be more satisfactory?
7: Yes, I, I imagine there are companies that don't particularly mind whether they they do have their names attached to things, particularly private companies. Proprietors may just actually want to do some good. Um, that, that That is possible. <laughs> it's not unheard of.
1: And Sam, one of the points that Matthew also makes is that philanthropy may actually take place because a donor wants to almost atone for his good fortune. Do you do you agree with that as well?
6: I think he makes a very wise and subtle psychological point. I think that's that probably does apply at corporate levels as well. I think the sense the sort of nagging sense that you know you do need to pay back that if you've had good fortune or you've made a lot of profits. You will feel better about yourself if you're feeling that some of these profits are benefiting those less fortunate than you. I mean, there's a sort of also a little bit of that kind of medieval buying indulgences
0: about it. You give
6: your money to the church and
0: they'll get you a few years off purgatory. On the more cynical side of it, though, Sam, if, if there's a company that wants to donate money, uh, create a wing of a, uh, a gallery or a hospital, a hospital or whatever, as an exercise in, I suppose, branding or... or or reshaping an image. To what extent do you think that actually works? Do you think there's actually a, a bit of a waste of time if, they, if that is the motivation behind companies' philanthropy?
6: My feeling, and I get the impression that Matthew agrees with me here, is that that it's possible to overstate how much, you know, putting the name above a gallery is a reputation laundering device, particularly now in the age when, you know, I mean, it's, it's often said, isn't it, that, that news coverage is much, much more penetrating than advertising or advertorial. You know, people, companies spend a lot of time trying to get favourable news coverage much more. it's, It's much more valuable to them than adverts. Conversely, sticking your name above a gallery is not going to cancel out, if you're the Sacklers, you know, Patrick Radden Keefe winning the Bailey Gifford Prize for Empire of Pain, which details in great and extravagant detail what very bad hats they are and how ill-gotten their gains were. And in the internet age, it almost sometimes would make you more visible. I mean, I I, often think I never had a clue who the Man Group were before they started sponsoring the Booker Prize. the Man Group, it turns out, is a sort of blameless hedge fund organisation with, with nothing bad about them at all. But actually, you know, were they sort of Sackler-style, behind-the-scenes villains... I wouldn't be surprised if sponsoring the Booker Prize as a thought experiment would not have brought them the sort of press attention that would expose them rather than otherwise. So I I, I don't think it's at all straightforward.
7: I entirely agree with that. I mean, take the Sainsbury's wing of um, the uh, the National Gallery. Uh, did anyone ever decide to buy their groceries from Sainsbury's because they sponsored a wing Paid for a wing at the National Gallery. I suspect that the Sainsbury's family. Well, I know that the Sainsbury's family are just good people, and they just wanted to do something to help. But if they thought they were purchasing uh, a, a, an increase in, in the number of their customers, or that they could raise their prices uh, because of it, I, I, I think the money would have been wasted.
1: Do you think, as a country, we're just fairly sort of cynical about philanthropy, and perhaps you know compared to kind of America or other countries that are sort of known for a slightly more kind of generous approach to it?
7: I think that because the government takes quite a lot of money from us in tax and because we expect the government to direct that money in all sorts of ways that might be regarded as charitable, we tend to think that it's, then, it's the government's job to spend money on, on helping people, helping nature, whatever. In America, where government doesn't do so much, there are quite a lot of good things going on that simply wouldn't go on. And unless uh, there were great philanthropists there. So th- there, there is a, there's a degree to which in Britain we feel that it, if it doesn't happen through us, it will happen through government. In America, if it doesn't happen through the big benefactor, it may not happen at all.
0: Thank you, Sam, and thank you, Matthew. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we look forward to you joining us again next week.